Open your Bibles to Matthew 11. Let me just catch you up. If you missed last week, we're in a series that we've called Heading. And it's really going to be about seven weeks this summer of, of just looking at some different things and sort of the destination that we've charted as leadership. And uh, we're going to talk through some of those things. And by way of review, you know, this isn't just what all churches should be. This is a clarified focus of what we have a sense God calling us to be. And then secondly, that this is more refinement and not overhaul. Uh, so we're not talking about big, you know, sweeping, massive changes. Just sort of in short, simple and family and gifts are the three words that you're going to hear a lot about. And we're going to focus on simple this morning. But, it, but in short, simple has to do with accessible and aligned family. The idea that we are a spiritual family, we're going to live that. And we're going to do all that we can to lift up the family as well. And finally, just the idea behind gifts is that every Christian has gifts. And that all of us should be using our gifts. And that our church is less if you aren't contributing. Just like one part of your body not contributing to your body, uh, you, your, your, your body would not be functioning as designed. What we understand is this, that there are implications for us as a church. There are practical, sort of, you know, great that there's a heading, great that we have these big sort of vision ideas. How does that translate into into life together as a church? So a part of what this series is, is both an, an opportunity to set some expectations, you know, as we set sail on a voyage and kind of hear, like, here's, here's how we anticipate uh, some of these things. But it's also an invitation for you uh, to ponder and participate in this with us. You're going to hear over the next couple of Sundays, a little bit different than our typical sort of sermon preaching time. But we want to let you in on some of the scriptures that have shaped and informed our thought process and some of the things that God's been stirring in us and even some of the ways it's already been fleshing out. So, so today is, um, is simple. We're going to focus on simple. And just a couple of notes on this. Uh, this is one of the unique ones because it really touches on all that we do. Um, so it's almost sort of a lens. Some of you are wearing glasses. I see you're wearing glasses. You didn't remember that you were wearing glasses probably until I just said that, right? Because you see through the lens. But you take that lens off and things look vastly different. So, so simple is, is different than family and gifts because it sort of touches on everything we do. And we're going to talk about what that means here in a second. Secondly is this, that simple keeps us strategic. Uh, if you're a Christian, whether you've been taught this well or not, whether you've discovered this well or not, you have joined Jesus Christ on a mission. You've joined Jesus Christ on a mission to evangelize the world and to remain faithful and to glorify him. That's, that's what you're doing. Simple is really strategic. Um, I made a list. I was, I was traveling uh, this week a little bit. I made a list of some simple games. And, and here's, here's one. You know, how about bowling? Like, if you're a bowling coach, what do you tell your players? Knock all the pins down, right? And if you don't do it the first time, do it the second time. And the next frame, you do the same thing. Horseshoes, what are you supposed to do? Right, ringers, throw that thing and let it let it hit the, the post and stay there. Archery, what are you supposed to do? Hit the spot in the middle. Like every time, that's, the, that's the, what you're supposed to do. Now, Settlers of Catan with, uh, with an expansion pack, right? Um, that becomes a more challenging game to explain, right? I'll tell you who's really good at this, and it's because he has to be. It's Ben. If you are teaching a game to middle schoolers, and the explanation of the game is longer than the game, you've lost the middle schoolers, right? They, they, they won't play the game. It's boring to hear rules to a game. So Ben's really good at this. If I'm playing a game, and someone starts into all the details of it, what I want to do is this. I just go, hey, what's, how do you win? 
Like, what is, what is winning look like? Tell me that first, and then we can work backward of all the sort of details of it. Simple is a way for us to keep in front of us, how do we win? Like, what is the main objective? What are we supposed to be doing? No matter what else might be going on, what are we, what are we supposed to be doing? So it's, it's strategic. Um, one more is this. Uh, I, I think it's easiest to get off course with this one. I think that there are so many currents sort of pushing our sailboat, as it, as it were, in our culture in particular, that we have to really fight to maintain simple. And again, I think as we talk through it this morning, you'll get more of a vision for that. And finally this, when I talk about simple and when we use the word simple, we are not saying simplistic. Simple and simplistic is different. Simplistic is taking the Christian life and boiling it down to really pithy sayings that are memorable and work great for slogans, but don't cover all of life. Simplistic is taking God, who, who, who we can't understand. I wouldn't even say we can't understand him completely. In some ways, we can understand him barely, right? The way an ant might explain a car to me. And so we're not going to bring God down to our level where we can understand it. That's, that's simplistic. Um, simple is a, is, a, is a different kind of a fight. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, um, is our text this morning. And, uh, and just follow along with me. Uh, this is Jesus talking. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The idea of a yoke here for all of us non-agricultural majors in college um, is, is the idea of two oxen working together and that big heavy wooden thing that kind of keeps them on track and they, and they pull the plow with, right? And what it's a metaphor here is it's a metaphor for discipleship. So, so I want you to think for a moment. I want you to get your head around this, just you yourself, before I begin to expand on a few thoughts. But how is the yoke of Jesus easy? How is discipleship, following Jesus Christ, easy? I think out of my mouth and out of my brain, a lot of times I think about how difficult it is to follow Jesus Christ. I think we live in a part of the country that there's a lot of things warring against us, morally speaking, right? There's a lot of things uh, changing culturally that, that, that seem to really push on us from all sides. And yet Jesus says, my yoke is easy. This picture of discipleship is easy. Anyone have any thoughts on that? On how discipleship with Jesus is easy? Here, here's a thought. God created the world. God created human beings to inhabit the world. If you think about it in really simple terms, the easiest path is to cooperate with the creator and live life in full view of God and cooperate with what he's doing. Does that make sense? And, and that anyone who's rebelling against that, that's actually the difficult life. It's difficult to not be in concert with 
God who created the world, created us, created the, the laws of not only physics, but the laws of relationships that are in place, all these different things. So, man, so much to ponder with that verse, but we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna move on. Um, I bring that verse up because of this. In comparison to the load that the rabbis of Jesus' day were putting on disciples, Jesus was, was an absolute breath of fresh air. I think he was contrasting what, what this heavy burden was that, that the rabbis were putting on their disciples. If you think about the most fundamental sin, it might be unbelief. Consider the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, the, the basic sin, you could maybe make a case for pride, but unbelief is right there at the core of the most basic fundamental sin. And one of the things that people all through history have had a challenge doing is believing God. Believing God for almost everything. But how about, let's go right to the crux of the matter, that how one gets saved, that we would trust God's way of salvation. Let's go back to Noah's Ark for a second. What was God's way of salvation? It was something that was utter foolishness, unless it was revealed and it was true. It had never been done before. It couldn't be, you know, replicated in a scientist's lab somewhere. It had to be received on faith. It was to walk up this ramp into this giant boat that this guy had built. That's the way of salvation. Was there any other way to avoid the coming flood? No. There was punishment coming for sin. There was no other way of salvation. Does any of this sound familiar to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Fast forward. Jesus Christ comes on the scene. He says that the things that I'm going to say are are utter foolishness to people who are thinking fleshly. But God has revealed that there's a way to salvation. I'm the way of salvation. And by the way, it's through a cross. It's through the humiliation and burden of the cross. And that's the way that you enter. We've been working through Romans, which says plainly and bluntly, friends, you are ruined on your own. Utterly ruined. I don't care if you're religious or utterly rebellious to all things moral, you're in ruin. And there's one way to be redeemed, and it's through Jesus Christ. And the one of the biggest challenges for us as humans is to simply believe that. This cuts so against our pride, doesn't it? We always want to help God out. Like one of the hardest things sometimes is to rid people from trying to help God out with the salvation equation. We either think we need to pay him back. We think we need to somehow impress him. We think we need to make up for lost time. We think surely the cross is massive to my salvation, but it also has to be some really rigorous obedience on my part. Nonsense. One of the things we preach heavy at this church, over and over, in fact, at this church, is we cannot accomplish our biggest need. It's, it's all Jesus doing it for us. Rich Mullins uh, was an artist, and, and one of the things I loved about him was just sort of his raw authenticity to his lyrics. In a song called Hold Me Jesus, he says this. I think it sums it up well. Surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really need than to take what you give and I need. And I sort of thought about that in relation to making life work and receiving the gift of salvation. And I think it's so hard for people to lay down and surrender and simply believe. The yoke is easy of Jesus because the invitation is this. 
God loves you as you are, not as you should be. The gift of conscience tells us how we should be. It's Father's Day. Dads, do we know that we should be better dads? Yes. That is a heavy burden that could weigh us down, beat us up, shame us, guilt us. We know what we should be. Here's the utter remarkable truth of the gospel. God loves us as we are, not as we should be. Friends, we just receive that. Like, think about the thief on the cross for a second. He saved his very best decision of his entire life for last. The last decision he must have made before he died was to simply believe that and just receive it. And that is such a foundational starting point that we keep coming back to it. And even as we've been walking through Romans, we keep coming back to that simple truth. If Jesus plus anything, you fill in the blank of whatever that is, is how you get saved and how you make life work, whatever's on the plus fill in the blank side is keeping you from God. You've heard a lot of preachers ask for money. You're about to witness history, okay? You're going to witness a preacher telling you to stop giving your money to the church. Ready? Here we go. Stop giving your money to the church. If the reason you are giving money to the church is because it's Jesus plus my 10% makes God happy with me. Follow? Here's one more. Stop serving in children's ministry. But I thought we have a ton of kids around here and there's lots of, of opportunities to serve. There are. But please stop doing it if that is somehow earning your way into God's good graces. Stop making coffee. Stop playing in the band. Stop leading a Bible study. Stop your perfect church attendance. If you're doing it out of that motive, that's actually keeping you from God. Read your Gospels. This is what Jesus railed against. Religiosity. Heavy burdens put on. Of course God saves us. But we need to do our part and help out in these following ways. If we don't have that starting point, friends, it sours all that follows. Now let's look corporately at this for a second. How about thinking through this? How corporately is the yoke easy if we as a church together, a local church, if we're yoked into Jesus? And it was already said earlier with some of the comments made. Who's the one really building his church? Answer me. Jesus Christ. Who gets to cooperate and be right there? Us. Who should be taking cues from whom? Us from Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. Corporately, the yoke is easy. Catch this. If collectively, we never, ever, ever, ever stop forgetting what Jesus did for us and does for us. If we keep coming back to that place, and again, we sing this, we preach this, we speak this to one another, we speak this into one another's lives. Brother, sister, lay it down. You're trying to earn your way back into God's good graces. Remember what Paul wrote in Galatians? Who's bewitched you with that idea? Having begun with grace, are you going to finish the work in the flesh now? Man, lay that down. So corporately, this idea of the easy yoke of Jesus is a really, really powerful starting point. And he says, take my yoke and learn from me. So here's what I would do. I want to kind of take a quick snapshot of how we learn from Jesus about some of these simple ideas. Number one is this. Uh, and by the way, in your notes, it's just kind of a white 
snow, snowscape look. It's just white. So you can just sort of jot down whatever speaks to you, whatever questions you have, and those kind of things, but there's no kind of fill-ins. Um, but number one is this, the idea of accessible. Um, Jesus and his message were easily within reach. And the reality is Jesus had to fight to keep those things in reach. Remember this? Um, don't hinder the children. Let the little children come to me. Why did he say that? The context of that was people saying, hey, don't let the children bother the master. Jesus came on the scene and he put the, the cookies on the, on, the, on the lowest shelf, so to speak. This goes hand in hand with our, our value of being helpful, not just truth, truthful. So again, think about teaching. Teaching can be impressive. It can be awe-inspiring. It can be really deep. It can be profound. It can be thorough. And all of it could not be helpful. If you walk away going, that was the most thorough teaching on Romans we've ever been. Yeah, it's been a good 15 years. We did good with that. And you're not changed by it? It wasn't helpful. Jesus made sure his message was within reach. He had all knowledge. He had all wisdom. And yet he chose not to impress us, but to lead us and to grow us. If you're a math nerd dad and you want your daughter to become a math nerd daughter and she's four, how do you talk to her? Right? You talk to her in a different way than you talk to your buddies at math nerd work that you do, whatever it is, right? Why? Because you want to grow them, you want to grow that daughter into the knowledge. You want it to be helpful. What are you tracking? You're not tracking all that comes out of your mouth. I've covered all 27 chapters of the curriculum for AP whatever, right? No. You say, man, I'm seeing her grow in her love for this. I see her, her eyes light up like it lights up me um, to just do math. I'm clearly speaking hypothetical. We have at least one over here. Um, actually, it's, it's appropriate. My dad loved math, and he would get excited to teach me math. And I said, can you just help me get to the problem? Like, the answer. That's all I really want, because then I can go play sports. Jesus didn't choose to impress, but to lead us. So he used common language. He used everyday examples that were culturally relevant to them. He told stories. Why did Jesus tell so many stories? Because they stick. Because they're multidimensional. And here we are telling the same stories from memory, centuries later. And they're impacting our lives. And we don't have to go up and memorize a principle. He told stories because that's how people learn. And he wanted people to grow and learn. Let me just say this. We want to do the same. We want to we take our cues from Jesus even in how we teach at all the different levels that we do. We sang this line last week from a song that Robin Ben uh, wrote. It's Jesus quoting from Isaiah where he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He comes on the scene. He quotes this in the temple. He puts it back and he sits down. Remember that? And it's just dead silence. He says, today, you've, you, you, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. Let me ask you this question. Why was it good news for the poor? Why was it good news for the brokenhearted and for the bound up? Because it turns out the God of all, Jew and Gentile alike, is actually within reach of all. And Jesus made absolute sure that his message and who he was as a person, he kept bringing it down to to just the commoner's level. 
the low shelf for the, for the, for the cookies on the, on the low shelf. We want to do the same things. How about uncluttered? Think about uncluttered for a minute. Simple has this idea of fighting the clutter. And you guys all have that drawer in the kitchen like I do, right? So we, we know how clutter just accumulates with no one setting out to do it. Think about this. Jesus sent out his disciples to minister with very few supplies. In fact, what I read is he sent them out with each other and the Holy Spirit. Those were the most important supplies that he sent out to go and minister. I can't really find any space in the gospel where we see Jesus fretting over the details of the worship service they're putting on and to make sure the fog machine is just right for, uh, you know, for that third song. We, we don't see a lot of, a lot of extra stuff happening. We see this really uncluttered look. Hebrews 12.1 says this, that we're to throw off everything that hinders and sin that so easily entangles. Could it be that much of what needs to go in our lives personally, maybe in our lives as a, as a, as a core family, and maybe even as a church, the stuff that needs to go isn't morally wrong, it's just hindering us in some way. And as you know, churches tend to go along, and history shows us this, the Spirit blows through the church and blows out all the crud that gets accumulated along the way. How does the crud get there? Sinful men and women inhabit the church. Sinful men and women lead the church and shepherd the church. Sinful men and women make decisions about policy and buildings and programs and all these different things. So there's a season, there's, a, there's an ongoing attention given to removing the things that hinder. The yoke is easy and the burden is light. When you contrast that again with the 613 commands that the rabbis of that day, uh, you know, had, had, had put together, and then they spent their time sort of arguing about which ranking, you know, they were in, and which one you had to do, and which one you sort of had to do, and all kinds of stuff. And Jesus comes along, he offers this really simple invitation. Come and have a simple relationship with God. That's what it's about. That's the uncluttered-ness of it. Remember when Jesus clears the temple? Of the money changers? Here, here's what was happening with that. First of all, he quotes Isaiah again. And he says, you know, that there's supposed to be a house of prayer where, where Gentiles and Jews can come and pray to the one true God. Instead, you've made it what? You've made it a den of thieves or robbers. You're making money off of God. By the way, it's a really good thing that no one's tempted anymore to make money off of God. I mean, we haven't grown that much. There's nothing new under the sun. But this really infuriated Jesus. Here's what's interesting. The money changers being there started off as a good thing. When you had someone traveling from far away and they were coming to Jerusalem, they were coming to bring a worship, they, they could purchase there a dove or a goat or whatever they might have. Secondly, it was, it was like, it's like traveling to a foreign country and needing currency there. So it actually started as a service, as a really, really good thing. And at some point in time, it became a cluttered thing, where all of a sudden it, be, it, it actually kept people from from coming to God because it, it was you know set up. People got in on that, saying, "Hey, that's a that's a good thing to be involved in." 
So I don't even think an immoral thing yet. And at some point, a good thing that had turned into a cluttered thing became a wicked thing. And the wicked thing that Jesus clears the temple is that people are now making money off of God. They're gouging people who show up and have to pay, you know, it's basic supply and demand. So here's the question that we ask as a church periodically. And and again, I would just say collectively, church, join us in this. Are there good things that we're giving our attention to and our time to that are that have become cluttered things. They started off as really good things, but it's become a hindrance in some way. And God forbid, is there something that's that was cluttering us for a while that somehow has actually turned into a wicked thing? That we are now doing something immoral as a as a collective church. And by the way, if you want to ask this for the church, start with yourself, right? We make up the church as individuals. So I'm calling you as a church, evaluate your life in this. Let me move on to the idea of being aligned. When you look at Jesus, one of the things that stands out to me is this verse where it says that he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. Now, if you're not a church kid, I was raised in church every other week, so I'm like a half-church kid. But you, you may have, you have no idea, like, what does that even mean? Here's what it is. It's basically code to say this. He was mission-obsessed. He was going to finish what he had done. If you read the Gospels, you hear over and over, he says this, my time has not yet come. You know, my time has not yet come. And then there's this shift in the wind in the Gospels. He says, the hour has come. He knew why he had come to earth. And so he was mission Obsessed. Secondly, when you look at Jesus, you see that great ministry opportunities were left undone. The book of Mark reads really interesting for people with ADHD type things because it just moves. In the first chapter alone, it says, Jesus did this, and immediately he did this, and immediately he was over here, and immediately that. And you're like, yes, this looks like a movie that I like to watch because there's lots of edits. What we see in the Gospels is this. Jesus would be ministering away, and he'd say, up, let's be going. I, I need to go to this town also. And he would leave. Really good ministry got left in other towns. He didn't heal every person. Catch this. He would go off by himself even when people were coming and looking for him. So Jesus had this sense of alignment. He didn't just do everything that there was to be done. In fact, if there was any life ever in alignment, it was Jesus. I don't know about you, but do you ever wonder sometimes, like, what would it look like if for one week my beliefs... My dreams, like what I really want the most, and my actions lined up absolutely perfectly for one week. I dream about that. I think that would be really amazing. Do you want to know what that would look like? Open your Bible to Matthew, to Mark, to Luke, and John, and spend a lot of time reading the life of Jesus. Jesus lived the aligned life. He put himself in human forms, and so he had limited amounts of energy and time and being in one spot at one time like all the rest of us. He says this in Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What things? It's all the stuff of life that we, we just get so kind of scatterbrained about. Here's from Psalm 27. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord 
all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Probably the most convicting contrast that I see in Jesus sometimes and people in this valley, and I would list myself right there with all the rest of us, is his absolute lack of being frantically busy. He wasn't just rushing from everything, meeting every single need, going every single place, saying yes to every request of his time. He seemed to be really present with people, didn't he? And he could do that with the whole crowds, he could do that with his inner circle, and he could do that one-on-one. And I look at that and I say, wow, that's an aligned life. His yoke is easy, church. Let's learn from him. Let's learn from him. He knew what the Father's will was and he went and did it. Single-mindedness is a roadblock to simple. Single-mindedness might be, in this day and age and in this location, it might need to be fought for more now than ever before. One of the things we have an opportunity as a church is to know about every single need under the sun in the whole great big wide world. Am I right? And so what happens, let me tell you, sitting from my chair, sitting from Gria's chair and Kel's chair and Ben's chair, what happens sometimes is people go, we need to be doing something about X, Y, and Z. And you don't even need to go very far from this neighborhood. Friends, the needs are endless. So then you say, how do we not get scatterbrained frantic and you say, God, you know, here's what we care about. Remember the beach ball size stuff we care about, but here's what we can handle. Would you show us and walk the way of wisdom so we're after what you've designed this church collectively to be? Would you do that for my life, for my family, but for my church family as well? Burnout is a problem in the church. Have you heard of this? What does burnout result from? I mean, just give me a answer off the top of your head. How do you get burned out? Never saying no. How, how does it result? Some of you have been there. Taking on too much. Yeah, I mean, back to our yoke example, right? Feeling like we need to, to do all of this. It's also serving from a place sometimes of guilt, of manipulation, of not wanting to let people down, of holding up the image that you're the servant type personality, and so you do that, and then you begin to play the martyr, and the whole thing sours from the inside out. We've all been there. We've all seen it. Single-mindedness is this. Man, if God's called you to serve in the nursery, I thanked a woman who got her name tag and walked in the nursery. She said, Happy Father's Day. I'm off to go play with the kids. And I said, Thank you. Thank you for being obedient. You know what? She had a massive smile on her face. Love that. I love that. James, just direct your attention very quickly. The enemy of Christians is distraction, right? There's a lot of enemies, but that's certainly one of them. And one of the enemies of church leaders is distraction, that we would get off just all these different places. James in one eight says that those who doubt are like an ocean of the wave, tossed here and there by the wind, unstable in all of his ways. That's the double-minded person. And in chapter 4, he says, Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's a call to repentance. Isn't it possible to serve on the outside as a community group leader, meanwhile on the inside enjoying the pride of being looked to as a leader? Isn't it possible to lead a Bible study and on the inside be resentful because you feel like you do all the study and prayer and you really care about this and no one else does? I could just walk through all kinds of different things. Does no one care about the homeless except for me? Come on, people. And there you go off to trudge and serve the Lord. No joy. 
No single-mindedness to give worship to God. No sense that, God, you've given this to me. You're going to empower me today as I go off and do this. It's, it's just night and day. Here's some questions that NBC asks, and let me just wrap up our time by sort of giving you some implications. One of the questions we talk often as a, as a staff and as a leadership, as an elder leadership, is this. Are people being transformed into disciples, or are they just busy? We don't want to just do busy. We have plenty of busy in our life. We want to be aligned for movement. So one of the things we look at regularly is this. Not just Sunday mornings. We have three number measurements that we look at most carefully in regards to people. How many people are attending a worship service? The numbers tell the story. Part of the story. So that's a good number to look at. How many people are involved in community groups? How many people are not just worship attenders only, but involved in some kind of a group? and serving or meeting together in a community group. And finally, how many in our church body um, know their gifts and are using their gifts? So we are not after a bloated Sunday morning service. That's the easiest thing in the world to do, by the way, is just let's get this up and going and think that we're doing great. We really celebrate when people who are far from God make a move to enter a church. By the way, a huge step for some people. We celebrate non-worship attenders when they start attending a worship service. We celebrate that. That's movement. We also really celebrate when a person makes a decision for Christ and begins to love God and, and, and feels the call to God's family and really begins to love other people. It's not enough to be with other people. I need to really begin to love them and open my life to them and have them open their life to me. And that's going to take place in community. We measure that and celebrate that. We love it. When someone's been saying, man, I attend Sunday mornings, I go to community groups, what else is there? And they dream up or they align with something else God's already doing and they move into a place where they're really serving out of their giftedness. We love that. We measure that. We talk about that. When this isn't happening, we take notice. One of the things coming up, I'll just let you know. The women, you guys are just killing it with getting together in community groups. You are. And I love that. That's a celebration to me. The men right now, we have dwindled in that. We're going to be having a meeting at some point in the future. Just watch for it, listen for it from me, to say we need to figure this out. Whether it's logistically we need more early morning meetings, or but we need to carve out time and do this together. So we're going to figure that out. And that's on the radar of this church because we care about people meeting in groups. So what fruit is evident? What must we do? What can we do? What should we do? These are the kinds of questions we kind of wrestle with. Let me walk through a couple of just really big key areas. And when we hit this on the second pass in a few weeks, we'll get a little bit more specific. But let me talk about one that's very visible. It's happening right now. It's the preaching and teaching of the church. In 1 Corinthians 2, if you just want to jot down 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2 say this. And when I came to you, brothers, um, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Catch this. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We teach directly from the Bible at this church because we want to train you and teach you. That's where you go to look for the follow-up questions. I hope that as you hear preaching from this place, from a variety of people, that you're actually learning, too, on your own, how to study Scripture. One of the things we do very intentionally with our children is we teach them the Bible. 
We make a point of teaching the kids the Bible. I heard from someone recently. They said, man, one of the things that attracted us to our church, we walked in the door, and next to a little mirror was one of my children reading a scripture verse about their image that they saw. And we love that because we want to teach our kids the scriptures. It's age-appropriate, but we from an early age begin to say, man, look to the scriptures to see how this life is supposed to work. How is that accessible? It's accessible because of this. We're all reading from the same playbook. There's not a special secret pastor's handbook that I read and you don't have access to. We get to all look at this together. Let me just give you a little snapshot of uncluttered. One of the things the elders have done for 10 years now is this. And we're not perfect at it because this coming Tuesday or Wednesday will will be an example of this. But generally speaking... We give our time to, by the way, your elders are very sacrificial in giving with their time. Thank an elder wife the next time you see her for letting her husband be gone on a midweek night, rushing straight from work to the church. We give ourselves the first meeting of every month to the business matters, to prayer, to spiritual direction of the church. And we give ourselves the second elders meeting of every month to be in your homes visiting with you. Because we see from the scriptures that we're to know well the condition of the people that we shepherd. And we don't know how else to do that except actually be with you. Now that's not the only time you'll be visited and spend time with the leaders of the church. But do you see how simple and straightforward that is? That's intentional. What we knew is this. The growing complexity of a growing church always lends itself to more and more business meetings, more and more things to discuss. We really try to discipline ourselves to say, we're going to do that in one meeting, and we're going to give ourselves in the other meetings to know the people so we can make the right decisions in the business meeting kind of thing. Here's a little bit about programs. We're really committed to not doing things unless they move people to progress in their discipleship. We really want to make disciples and grow up disciples. So we want to reach out, we want to build up. And if that program isn't doing that, then we say no to it. And we say no to it joyfully, not with any guilt. And if one of you comes up with a brilliant idea and say, man, I think we ought to do this, here's what we do, we ponder. Should that be an under-the-NBC umbrella idea? Or is that something God's calling you to keep away from the church? Don't bring that to the church. Leave that in your neighborhood. Leave that, leave that in the marketplace. And so we pray and kind of wrestle through those things. I'm going to invite Ben up for a second. Programs are tools to transform and never just an end to themselves. Um, one of the things churches do is they take kids places. They do programs for kids. Well, we don't buy into that. We don't just do camp because that's what churches do. Send the kids off to camp and give them a break from the parents or something. That's, that's not the point of camp. Um, and so, uh, in a week, we have 12 senior high students heading off to a camp for a very specific reason. Let me just kind of tell a story because this story fleshes out some of what's, what's already gone on. We said goodbye to Cody and Courtney in November. Uh, they're back in Colorado now. But they really had a heart. God burdened them with young married couples. And specifically, they had a heart that couples would get off to the right start in marriage. And, um, and so they approached me and they said, God's put this on a heart. We're not really sure what to do with it. We're kind of contemplating um, doing a community group around that, but we're not sure. And I, So we just began to pray together, the three of us. And we asked for the Lord's leadership 
in how to marry this, this passion that this couple had with what we were already doing. Cody and Courtney bought into the idea, that's part of why they were at this church, they bought into the idea that the Bible speaks to all of life. They had already been attending community groups for well over a year now, so, so they were known amongst us. And so what we dreamt up together was this. What about a community group that isn't marriage-focused, it's God-focused, but with a marriage appetizer? And here's what we mean by that. We'll still be walking through whatever book of the Bible we're going through. We're going through Romans right now, but we'll do a little bit of extra work, myself as the primary preacher and them as the community group leader, to sort of say, is there something in here that tweaks a little bit toward those first couple years of marriage that we could, we could not let that dominate the discussion and have it all be about our marriage, It'll all be about God. But we'll, we'll kind of dive in and see what that week has for us with regard to marriage specifically. And so we met together over the summer and we prayed about it. We tweaked it. And we talked about how it would be. And what was so exciting about it was this. This was alignment in action. So this wasn't, we have a passion for young couples. We ought to start a, a ministry to that. It was them fitting in with what we already do. We're about community groups. So it was a very easy thing to say, yes, let's have a community group that has that as sort of a, 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 a tinge to it. Let me ask you a question. When someone comes to me with that idea and that level of commitment and wanting to make it happen and that level of, hey, can we seek the Lord and be pliable, does that leave the pastor energized or burned out? In case you don't know the answer, it leaves me energized. Here's why. I don't have to go shopping for a new hat rack thinking here's one more hat I have to wear because someone felt a passion for young couples and I ought to somehow take that on or dream up how that fits in with things. I became really energized by it. I'll tell you why else I got energized by it. Because I remember very specifically my very first conversation with them after a few weeks of attending this church. And saying to them, I pray that as God knits our heart together, should he lead, that if there is a specific spot that you're supposed to be serving, God will make that evident to us. And I remember a year later, about a year and a half later, when they came and, 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 and we had a second level conversation about that. And here we were seeing fleshed out a very specific need in this church that they felt passionate and equipped and ready to jump in and do. Here's the kicker. Neither one of them are paid full-time ministers at all. He worked at Lockheed. She was a preschool teacher. They fit this into their busy lives because they aligned with what their church was doing. Here's one more bit of, two more bits of information. One is this. For about a solid year, they did not feel called to foster care. They never thought they would be foster parents. They didn't really have that on their radar, but they were attending a church that seemed like God was leading us in a direction to serve foster kids, so they decided to get on board, even though it wasn't their specific thing. You know how they chose to help? They watched the biological kids of the parents who were going to interest meetings about foster care. So they jumped in and served. Talk about just getting on board with something. And finally, I'll say this. They didn't become known to the leadership of the church or have access to real leadership in the church simply by showing up on Sundays once a week. They did it by showing up on Sundays, engaging with what was happening, and being part of a group. It was that simple. And you do that over time, and it, and it emerged into this incredible way that they were able to serve the body. I'm going to wrap up with four very simple steps of yes for you 
that will be kind of tools for simple moving forward. Listen, let me give you just four things. If, if you want to write these down, these are sort of handles on how can I participate in, in this. And a lot of you, I'm preaching to the choir, a lot of you already do this. What I would say is this, continue in what you already know to do. Continue doing what you're doing. The first one is this, attend a worship service weekly here. We tend to do them on Sundays at the same time every single week. It's kind of easy to figure out. Carve out this time as a priority above all else and see what happens. I wonder if people would just take like a 90-day challenge and say, you know what, instead of coming three times a week and then off to do this or that, I'm going to make this an absolute utter priority. Again, dads, we cannot celebrate enough that you are bucking the trend of culture and saying on this Father's Day, what I want to do is I want to be in church with God's people. Man, that, that, that'll change the trajectory of your spiritual tone if you haven't already done that. Number two is this. Before you come to worship, the night before and on the way, pray. Pray for the people preaching, leading worship, serving our children, setting up signs out there. Pray for opportunities. Say, God, I'm here as a servant of you. Give me opportunities within the family of God to meet needs and to really be here. I heard this last week. I was trying to meet a new couple. I couldn't even get to them because there was a few other people in front of me. Great problem to have as a pastor, right? And what I hear them saying is this. Hey, we're going to lunch. Do you guys have lunch plans? Brand new people. And I just love that. That's just saying, man, we want to come. We're here to serve. So come in a mode of prayer. Thirdly is to commit to being in a group. The stats on this are really, really shocking. Church members who are involved in some kind of a group, catch this, are five times more likely to be at the church in five years. We don't even need stats to tell us that. Experientially, that's just true. If you show up on Sunday morning and you're a Sunday morning only person, I've watched it happen for 10 years at this church. I've watched people go from a weekly attender to a weekly attender involved in a group. And I've watched their gifts explode. I've watched them explode in in their spiritual faith. There's no magic formula. You're going to come to community group the first time and go, this is supposed to change my life? It does over time. So commit to being in a group. And finally is this. We're going to get more into this on our second pass of this. We don't require a lot from you as a church. It's really intentional. Sunday mornings and one community group. Some of you grew up in an era of church like I did. It was two services in the morning, a Bible study and a worship service. But wait, there's more. Sunday night, we would do singing in a different kind of a service. But wait, you come back on Tuesday for another Bible study. Thursday night's choir. Friday night is some sort of a fellowship time. This was part of my life growing up. I don't think any of that's wrong or bad. I think there's aspects of Acts 2 devoting themselves that that can be a really joyful thing. We have intentionally stripped a lot of that away, not so that you can be tempted into filling your time with binge-watching on Netflix. But that's the reality. It can turn into a lot of other things. What if you took one hour a week over the next six months and devoted it to serving somewhere? If every member of our church committed to doing this, our church needs here in this building and our church needs in the neighborhood would drastically change. And I think if churches around the South Bay did this, it would drastically change. That's a lot of manpower doing a lot of different stuff.
Those are four handles. We're about 10 minutes over uh, right now or so. Thanks for being patient, church. Let me just pray. Let me pray as we close, and then we'll dismiss. Father, I'm grateful for the building that we're sitting in right now. Um, I think about the Hollies, God, who have been with this building for almost all 50 of its years. And God, you've seen fit to keep a church here in this neighborhood. Would you help us, God, collectively as a church in this time and in this location to sail well, to discover and listen and and seek out your leadership and your life that you have for us, God. I thank you so much for every single person in attendance this morning. God, we're joyfully your children. For those, God, in this very room who don't know that they are, who don't know what that even means, I pray you would fall heavy on them, God, such that they'd want to get that figured out and get in on this life that you've so graciously given to us. God, today as we dismiss here, help us to carry out our beliefs by our actions, even with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.